Today's reading is from 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. It's on page 1021 of the Pew Bible. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with us, with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. Maybe see. Good morning. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it with me to 1 John. And let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and who has spoken to us in your word, we just ask that you would speak to us now. Open our hearts to receive your word and use it to make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, I am 26 years old, which means for 26 years, I've been learning, right? Living and learning about the world, things that interest me. Uh, I'm a huge country music fan, so learning about country music. And most importantly, probably learning about myself, learning me. And over the past month, uh, I have learned something really serious about myself, and I'm gonna share it with you, and I'm just gonna prepare you. It's probably gonna shock, shock you when I say it, okay? I am not good at basketball, okay? I know that's shocking. I'm really short. I probably can't jump very high, right? I wear uh, leather-soled shoes, not like Jordans and things like that. My mom forced me as a kid to take tennis lessons, and when I was old enough to choose a sport, I chose golf. And I played the saxophone in marching band, so I was as far away from basketball as you probably can, can be. But I did grow up with brothers, which means we played outside, we, we had a basketball goal, we, we shot horse, you know the game horse, right? Everybody's familiar with that. So in my mind, I did play basketball, okay? And recently, a, a new friend of mine from work uh, was like, hey, after work, let's go, let's go shoot hoops. We'll play horse and it'll be fun. And I was like, yeah, that, that sounds great. So I went, I played, I lost, but it wasn't, it wasn't bad. And we had enough fun that I got invited back. This time when I, got, when I got to the gym to play basketball, there were a lot of other people. And so my coworker says, hey, uh, we have enough to play three on three. So here is where I make a crucial error. I say, sure, yeah, let's do it. Because my thinking was I've played horse, I know how basketball works. And basketball is just like horse, maybe just faster or something, but I understand the, the game. I, I don't even have the words to describe how wrong I was. It immediately crashed and burned. I was shooting the ball, it wasn't even hitting things that it needed to hit. It was really bad. It was so bad that after the first game, I'm like, hey, I'm gonna run to the locker room, go to the bathroom. I call Esme, I'm like, 
I need you to please make up an excuse for why I need to leave right now to come home. It was absolutely humiliating because I had a fundamental misunderstanding of the game of basketball and of my ability uh, or lack thereof, right? But I did get invited back. And so me needing to regain some confidence accepted. I was ready for it. But this time when I showed up, there was not a group of people. It was just my friend from work, and, and he said, hey, why, why don't we just dribble today? We'll, we'll practice, some, we'll practice some, some layups, right? Because I didn't need to play anymore. I needed fundamentals. I needed the basics of basketball. We needed to get back to the basics. And so that is what our sermon is about this morning. Getting back to the basics. So we have finished our secondary series, uh, Prayers in the Bible, and we're starting a new series now uh, in 1 John. And it is going to become our primary series in the future when Mike finishes the Gospel of, of Luke. And so I get to open this series and preach this sermon from it, and I think the next couple of sermons in the series. And so with that... Here's a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going. We're going to spend some time introducing this, this sermon series, spend some time introducing the book of 1 John, looking at the circumstances, the context, and then finally we're going to look at the prologue, the first four verses of John, and we have three points. And in one sense, the way that John writes this letter, and especially the first four verses, he steps back and he wants his readers to know foundational, basic truths about the person and work of Jesus. And so our three points are going to come from those four verses, and here, here they are. Point number one, the eternal word of life. Point number two, the incarnate word of life. And point number three, the effects of the proclaimed word. So let's start... Uh, introducing 1st John. Because we're starting a new series and because it's going to be our primary series, we want to spend some time looking at the context surrounding the book. 1st John is a, is a really interesting book. It has been a, a book that seminary students have cut their teeth on studying elementary Greek. And in one sense, it's simple because of its grammar. It's easy to read. But on the, the other side of that, it's, it's deep, profoundly, theologically rich. And so I, I want us to answer just a few questions. First of all, who wrote it? What are some major themes of the book of 1 John? To whom was it written? And then kind of why was it written? Putting that all together, spending the most amount of time there. So first, who, who wrote it? Well, we don't actually know. The author of 1 John is technically anonymous. He's, he's unnamed. But there is great reason to think that it was written by the apostle John. There are great similarities between uh, the three epistles that John writes and then the fourth gospel that's typically attributed to John. In fact, there are 51 parallel passages that connect this letter, just 1 John, and the gospel of John. And then on top of that, none of the church fathers thought that it was written by anybody other than John. So we're going to go with it was written by, by John. So this is John, the brother of James. They were sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. John, the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The apostle chosen to watch after the mother of our Lord at the time of his crucifixion. Maybe you, you may best remember him as John, the, the disciple who outran Peter to the tomb at the time of Jesus' resurrection. This is John, a man who had a close relationship with Jesus. 
And it's thought that John wrote this in a ripe old age with a pastoral heart and care concern for the church. So with that, what are some, some themes of 1 John? Well, the first one would be assurance. John wants his readers to have assurance of their relationship with Christ. He lays out throughout the epistle criteria so that believers he writes to can test their faith to know if they're in Christ. He'll repeatedly say, if blank, if this is true of you, then you are in Christ. But on the other side of that, another, another theme would, would be warnings. John gives clear warnings to reveal those who are, are not in Christ. He contrasts those who walk in the light with those who walk in darkness, those who say they have no sin and those who confess their sin, those who keep God's commandments and those who do not, those who love and those who hate their brother, those who love the world, those who do not, those who practice sin, those who practice righteousness those who love and those who do not, those who believe and those who do not, and those who have the Son and those who do not. Really, he wants, he wants believers to be able to discern between false teachers or antichrists. And then another major theme of 1 John would be God and his nature. God, the Father of Jesus Christ. In him there is no darkness. He is love, and his love is revealed to us in him sending his Son to die an atoning death for our sins and making us his children. And along with that, the person and work of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh in the incarnation, the Holy Spirit and his anointing of us to prove us as children of God, and the Spirit being regarded as the source of truth by which the Word is implanted to us. And in this, in this experience, we have a source of assurance that the believers, that we are truly uh, belonging to God. And then the last one, it would be to, to abide. So John says, basically, take, take these truths that I'm presenting to you, and abide in them. Here is who Jesus is, and abide in him. So he uses the word abide or remain throughout the, the, the book that he writes, and this is the, this is the, the theme, the, the line, the byline of our sermon series, to, to abide. So then why was the letter written? Let's start trying to put all, all of this together. So John writes this letter, a personal letter, to a church unknown. We don't really know who it was written to, where the church was, but we do know that he writes to a group of believers. And it may also be true that John had a close relationship with this group because it appears that he cares about them. He calls them beloved ones and, and little children. And it's also pretty likely that John writes this letter with the intent of it going to a few different churches. John writes it, sends it to one, and it's passed around from church to church in the, the general area. And it's clear that the church that John writes to had a few major problems. The first major problem or circumstance that led to the writing of this letter was that, was that there was a church, a church split. So we don't know the extent of this, how many people were involved with it, but we do know that there was a group that broke off or seceded away from the body. So let's just think about that for a second. I don't really want us to, to miss that. When, when people leave the church, even if they go to a good, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting church, it can, still, it can still be a painful thing because they were a member of, of our body. 
But in that case, we rejoice. We rejoice that they're still going to a church. We rejoice that there are other good gospel-centered churches that they can be a part of. And this, in some ways, is kind of like what ministry looks like, right? The church raises up people and then sends them out into the world. And, and even those departures can be bittersweet. We're sad to see them go, but we rejoice in them going. This, however, is, is not the case with the church that John writes to. The people who, who left, who broke away from the body, weren't going to another gospel-centered, Christ-exalting church. They were leaving the faith altogether, denying foundational Christian doctrines, foundational beliefs about the person and the work of Jesus. And so that leaving had to have caused pain and concern because they weren't stepping away from the church. They were stepping away from, from the faith. And even this doesn't really get, get at the, 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 the idea, the context in 1 John. People didn't just leave the church quietly because they had differing opinions. Those who broke away from the church did so claiming a higher orthodoxy, believing that they had a, a higher understanding, thinking that their motives were pure, and they didn't keep it to themselves. They were preaching it. So now imagine a congregation losing some dear brothers and sisters who are teaching something contrary to what they had been hearing. Imagine them preaching something drastically different. This is when you start to get a sense of, of the context of 1 John. This situation that people left and were preaching contrary doctrines in the name of a higher orthodoxy leads to, to two other problems within the congregation. First, the congregation started to struggle with some behavioral issues, naturally. And second, the congregation was confused because they had been influenced by these serious doctrinal issues, especially in their understanding of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Those who seceded were preaching that Jesus was, was not the eternal Son of God. They were preaching that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. He only appeared to have come in the flesh. And they preached that Jesus' death didn't actually purchase or achieve anything. So to kind of recap this, you have a church who lost a group of brothers and sisters who began preaching a different message, proclaiming a very different Jesus than the Son of God who actually came in the flesh as a man. And we shouldn't be surprised then when that church is confused, having behavioral problems, and, in, and is in need of a letter. So John writes. He writes to them to correct false teachings, to correct behavior, and to encourage them by assuring them of their faith, telling them to abide or remain in the true Son of God and in the truth of the gospel. And so that brings us to our text. Let's, let's read it again. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
So 1 John is a letter. It's an epistle. But if you're familiar with other New Testament epistles or letter, it already looks a little bit different. There's no introduction of John or the people that he's with. There's no formal identification of the people he's writing to. Right? He's not like, hey, it's John. I'm here with blah, 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 and we are writing to you, the church in Ephesus. He doesn't, he doesn't give us any of that. In fact, the letter kind of starts with John getting straight into the meat of his letter, that which was from the beginning. John wastes no time with the formal greeting. He, gets straight in, he starts with presenting an image of who Jesus actually is, and I think it serves two purposes. First, to get back to the basics. With confusion, secession, behavioral issues, John wants to go back to the ba- basics and literally back to the beginning. It's as if John's like, okay, let's back up. We need to make sure we're on the same page about who Jesus is because he's the center of our faith. We, we just need to dribble right now, okay? And if we aren't clear on who Jesus is, what we believe about everything else will be muddy, And I think the second reason is to make sure that the people receiving this letter know that Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, is the authority by which John writes. John is able to write to them about behavioral problems, doctrinal issues, because of who Jesus is and because Christ is victorious. So that brings us to our first point uh, from the text, the eternal word of life. John starts by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And remember, these people had a fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus is, the eternal word. So John takes a step back, tries to get back to the basics, back to the basic truth about who Jesus is. The beginning of our Bible starts with a foundational statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was in the beginning, before the beginning. He just was. He existed and he exists. From eternity past to eternity future, God just is. And he exists in his triune state, Father, Son, and Spirit. God was in the beginning. And John's gospel begins in a similar manner. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, the Word, existed as with God, as God, in the beginning. And so John's letter starts in the same way, that which was in the beginning, the Word of life, in the beginning, eternal, from the foundation of the world and before, with God, as God. Jesus is not created, Jesus is not finite, and Jesus is not merely or only human. So why does John want his readers to know this? Why why would he start with that? John wants them to see that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, has existed from the beginning, but I think more than this, he wants them to know that Jesus is the Son of God. He wants them to know that Jesus was not just a man. He is the Son of God come as a propitiation for sin. He had the authority to, sorry, he has the authority to teach, heal, raise the dead, condemn the wicked, and to forgive sin. So why why would this cause problems? Or, Or what kind of problems could this cause? If Jesus is not the eternal word, and if he is just a man, there are a few different problems, a lot of problems that could arise, but here are just a couple of them. First, If Jesus is just a man, his teachings become 
really easy to deny or to ignore. And so I want us to be really practical about this and remember that, that there are people who, who believe this, that Jesus walked the earth as a historical figure, as a good moral example, as a good teacher, but not as the Son of God. And if that's the case, we can easily write off when he's, what he says when it starts to hit a little too close to home. So when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We, we raise our hands. We're like, amen. That sounds great. Or when Jesus says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he calls to his friends and neighbors and rejoices. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. We, we start to get filled with emotion and we praise God for his love for the sheep. And these are great. These are great even if Jesus is just a man. But when Jesus says, anyone who is angry with his brother or everyone who says you fool is liable to the hell of fire, things start, start getting a little bit tougher. Or when he says, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It is better to tear out your eye and to lose one member than your whole body be thrown into hell. We start backing up a little bit like, oh, okay, Jesus. Or when Jesus says, you must hate your mother and father, take up your cross daily. The people are going to persecute you. You have to love your enemy. Well, we don't want any of that. Besides, Jesus is just a man like, like you and me. If Jesus is merely a man, the teacher's commandments can become mere suggestions, and then the Great Commission can also become a suggestion. So similarly to that, if Jesus is merely a teacher, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, becomes a suggestion. So maybe we'll just go to the nations we already wanted to visit, or we want a vacation in, or we'll go do evangelism where it's easy. But if Jesus is just a teacher, and we're confronted by people threatening our life, asking who is Jesus to us, or what it is that we're teaching... Well, I, I hope in that case that Jesus for us is the eternal Son of God, not just a teacher. But if Jesus is, since Jesus is the eternal Son of God, our only response is humble obedience in acts of worship. Since Jesus is the eternal Word, we don't get to pick and choose which commands or teachings we obey. His commands are from his mouth, mouth of the eternal word, and so we obey. We, we go to the nations. We fight sin because of his authority as the eternal word. So that's our first point, the eternal word of life. Our second point is the incarnate word of life. This Jesus, the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who's existed from eternity past, came into the world taking on flesh, living as a man, living, breathing like you and me. So John says the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it. Jesus, the Son of God, came in the world taking on flesh, born as a baby of Mary, grew up, traveled, taught, had friendships, felt emotion and felt pain, yet at the same time re retained his deity. He was and is truly God and truly man. Some scholars believe that one of the heresies John is trying to combat is what we would call docetism. It's an important precursor to Gnosticism. 
And it's basically just a big word for describing Christ coming into the world. So to put this in the most basic terms, Docetism teaches that Christ only appeared to come in the flesh and was never truly man. This would also mean that Christ's sufferings were apparent and not actual. In this, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were apparent and not real. And in this, his life, death, and resurrection don't achieve anything because they aren't real. So John wants his readers to know, to, be, to really know that Christ actually did come in the flesh. He goes above and beyond to portray that to his readers. He really came in the flesh. So listen to some of this language. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, this was made manifest and we have seen it. Touched, heard, seen Jesus in the flesh, alive as a man. And if Jesus was really incarnate, was really a man, then he could really die. And he did. So let's just let that reality sink in, that the second person of the Trinity came in the flesh as a man, and he came in the flesh to die and to die for our sin. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that death was real. And because that death was real, sin can be and is forgiven. In Jesus' death on the cross, our sins were transferred to him. And in his life, his righteousness is given to us. And we, we can talk about this all up in the air, but I, I want us to be really specific again. Jesus died for our sin, and he, does, he died for specific sins. And so I hope that when we take time each week to silently confess our sins, that we're confessing specific sins that come to mind. Not, not just, I am a sinner, that, that's true, but I, I know that I was impatient with my wife and unloving to her when I woke up late for work Monday morning, or, or I know I looked at this person in a way that I should not have. I hope, that, I hope that we name specific things, and then in our confession, remember that Jesus died for those sins, and that those specific sins are forgiven. This is the gospel, the, the center of the story of salvation, of redemption, redemptive history, and to add to this, since then we have a great high priest through the heavens, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus came in the flesh. He experienced temptation and because of this, knows what it is that we go through. He knows and can sympathize with us, yet he did not sin. And because of this, we hold fast to our confession. We abide in these truths with confidence because he came in the flesh and was tempted, yet without sin. And then that brings us to our third and, and final point. The effects of the word proclaimed. 
So John starts wrapping up his prologue. He says, the word is eternal, and the word became man, taking on flesh. We, those who are, were with Jesus, the apostles, we have seen him, we've touched him, we've heard him. He actually came in the flesh. And then this message John takes, and he doesn't keep it to himself. He proclaims it. He proclaims it to the church. And there, I think, are three reasons why John proclaims this message. One is implicit, and then two, he lists explicitly. So the first one is that this, John proclaims this message because it has the power to save. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. John proclaims this message because it has the power to save. The person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh, dying on the cross, and resurrecting three days later, saves those who hear and place their faith in that Jesus. And, and so for us, we take this message and we proclaim it to others because it still has that power. It doesn't have to come from John. It can come from us. We believe it, and so we proclaim it, and we should proclaim it. If, if we believe the message of the gospel, we should want to proclaim that message to every single person we know and, and encounter. And, and if we don't, then I wonder to what extent we actually, actually do believe or have grasped that message. So two, more explicitly, John proclaims this message because it unites believers. That which we have seen and we heard, we proclaim to you so that you too can have fellowship with us. By John's proclaiming of this message, he is anticipating that those who hear it will be welcomed into fellowship with him. This message, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, brings believers into fellowship with other believers. The blood of Jesus brings people from different walks of, of life, races, worldviews, political affiliations, uniting them together with a bond that trumps every other difference. And, and that's one reason I, I like Vine Street, because we, we might not look like it, but there is diversity here. We come from, from different places. We come from different generations. Uh, and, and we think differently, yet at the end of the day, we gather week after week, worshiping together, proclaiming Christ's death, partaking of the Lord's Supper, and experiencing real Christian fellowship together. So that's one reason John proclaims this message, to welcome them into the fellowship with him and with other Christians. And then third, finally, this message John proclaims to welcome other people into the fellowship with Jesus, the Son of God, and his Father. So John says, you can have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with God. This message John proclaims that we have spent this time looking at this morning is the gospel. And through it, sinners are welcomed into the fellowship of other Christians, but more importantly, they can have fellowship with God and his son. They can have fellowship with God through his son. The good news of Jesus Christ has the power to save and to welcome sinners back home to their heavenly father for everlasting fellowship. So we take this truth and we proclaim it. We proclaim it for the salvation of sinners. We proclaim it so that others can be welcomed into the fellowship with us. And we proclaim it so that others can have fellowship with God and his son, Jesus. This church had been influenced by a group of people who had broken off and denied essential truths about who Jesus is. So John starts this letter by getting right back to the basics, laying out clearly who Jesus is. The eternal word come in the flesh to die for our sins so that we can be welcomed in to the fellowship of God. 
So for us, let's, let's hear these truths, abide in them, in their power, and in the person and work of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you sent your Son into the world to, to take on flesh, to live, and, and to die for our sins. God, give us daily strength to obey because of, of the authority of Jesus, because of who he is. Show us sin to confess and then hold fast in the truth that we are forgiven. And help us to abide in the truth of the gospel and proclaim that message. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.